0: This afternoon's message is titled, A Merciful and Just God. So let's pray now and ask God to bless our, our heart, his word to our hearts. Gracious Lord, we lift up our hearts to you in worship and in praise. You've given us your word that we might know you, that we would know the way of salvation, that we might know what is pleasing in your sight. You bless us with your spirit that we can understand your word, and, and we ask you now, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds as we study this parable that Jesus sets before us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, our text is going to be uh, Matthew 18, verses 21 uh, through 35. This is uh, about uh, this whole message is on forgiveness, a parable about. It's on forgiveness and uh, and unforgiveness as well. So listen to uh, God's holy word as I read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him this debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred dinero and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So as with all of Jesus' parables, he is creating this story. uh, and, And he's talking about things that his listeners of that day could easily identify with. And during that time, there were, there were debtors' prisons, people who simply could not pay uh, their debts. They might be sold along with their wife and along with their children until they could pay that debt, although it's very hard to pay a debt when you're sitting in, in prison. So that was often a life sentence. But the king in this parable is set out to do just that. He is about to throw this servant into prison. Judgment was about to fall on the king's servant. Uh, As the parable moves along, we'll see the surprising and unexpected mercy and compassion of this benevolent king. Not something that we usually see a a king during that time uh, doing, having such mercy. And we will readily identify the compassionate king with our heavenly compassionate father, who forgave our enormous debt of sin when we (laughs) repented and when we believed on him in contrast we're going to see this king's servant he seems to be void of any kind of compassion at all or any willingness to forgive others and so excuse me and so in this parable uh, it is hoped that we see we see that God it stands ready to graciously forgive And i think that's apparent and may we also see that God never sets aside his justice God's never set aside his justice for the, sake, uh, for the sake of mercy. So let's begin to look at this important parable. We're going to look at this verse by verse. Well, Peter asks a question that maybe we have asked uh, sometime in our life, or at least thought about. We, we see that question in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. As many as seven times. Well, more than likely, Peter's question was was based on uh, the previous instructions that Jesus had given in in Matthew 18, just a few verses before. And I'm going to read that, 18 uh, uh, verses 15 through, through 17. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus gives us the steps to follow when a brother has sinned against us but what if step one actually works (laughs) what if you don't have to go any further than step one what if you confront your brother and he says to you thank you brother that sin's been weighing down on me like a piano strap to my back thank you so much for confronting me with my sin (laughs) well we're probably not going to get such a heavenly response as that right but but and that's what prompts Peter's question, though. Essentially, Peter is asking our Lord this: What if that same brother continues to sin against me and repents? What do I do then? At what point can I say to that brother, "Enough is enough"? Where is that line that he dare not cross? Where is that? I want to know where that is, because there's really an attitude. I, I don't I don't want to forgive him, but you know, if I have to, show me the limit here. Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps that number had just popped into Peter's head seven times. Well, we, we know it could happen. Uh, a lot of times things just popped into Peter's head and proceeded directly out of his mouth and didn't seem to quite have that filter there. We just, Hey, how about seven? How about seven? But probably Peter was thinking of a prevailing Jewish tradition. That tradition taught that a person asking for forgiveness was limited to three times. That's it. Three times. So after that, forgiveness could, could be denied in that tradition. So when Peter suggested forgiving his, fellow, his fellow, servants, or fellow brothers three times, he probably thought he was being incredibly gracious and forgiving. Right? And perhaps he thought something like this, Surely my Lord would be greatly impressed with my suggestion of seven times he's going to see that spiritual person that I really am. (laughs) In fact, Peter may have thought that his answer was stretching it a bit. I mean, after all, seven times, that's twice as many times as the Jewish tradition, right? Well, we know that Jesus' response uh, shocked Peter. We see that in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but uh, 77 times. And so, actually, some manuscripts uh, uh, read 7 times 70, which would be 490 times. But the number is really not the uh, the point here. Jesus wasn't saying that 77 was the limit and that on the 78th occurrence, you could simply say to your brother, sorry, you're all maxed out. Have a nice day. <laughs> well, that wasn't the case, of course. We'd, need a, we'd be we'd need like a golfer, right? We'd carry a scorecard with us and, okay, that's That's the number of that. One commentator writes, through Christ, God doesn't keep count, so don't you keep count. I like that. What Jesus was saying is that the grace and mercy that we are extend to our fellow brethren should have no limit at all. It should not have a number on it. It's not about a gracious number. It is about a gracious heart that we are to have. Well, Peter thought he could impress his Lord with an answer that he just simply felt was more than generous and you know, an answer that would make him uh, look good. He saw himself going far beyond what God required, right? I'm going to go way beyond. Have you ever thought that in your heart? Have you ever thought, I've gone above and beyond the call of duty, what God has called me to do. I've gone, I've gone way past it. Surely God must be impressed with me, <laughs> Right? But the bar Jesus sets, of course, uh, uh, makes that impossible to do. He destroys any such notion. Be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. That kind of ends the discussion there, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah, there's nobody here. And he reminds us in Luke 17:10, when you have done all that you are commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Not even in our very finest moments as a Christian uh, could we ever make such a boast. Not even close. So Peter's uh, fixed number implies that forgiveness can be given as a perfunctory duty. It's simply a duty that a Christian must do. uh, An obligation has to be met and it's not much more than a checklist. checklist. It's just what I do. The thinking goes something like this. I'm a Christian. Christians forgive. Therefore, I must forgive. It's my job as a Christian to do that and nothing really more than that. Of course, when we, we get to the end of our parable, uh, the only forgiveness our Lord accepts is from the heart. That's the only forgiveness. Uh, in many cases, genuine forgiveness is is a, is an act of mercy that seeks to restore a broken relationship. Most most of the times, I think I think that's very true. Peter uh, would one day find himself on the very end of such a restorative forgiveness, right, from his Lord. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter would choose sleep over praying for his Lord in, in, in the time of his Lord's greatest need, right? When soldiers came to arrest, arrest Jesus, Peter fled. He was looking out for his own safety. He was not looking out uh, uh, for the good of his Lord. And so... Peter would deny his Savior three times. We know that. But Christ, in a most tender way, would fully forgive and restore this wandering sheep. Well, that's certainly our picture, isn't it? It was then Peter would learn that forgiveness is not about a number. That's where he would really learn that. Have you ever felt that your sins are just too too many, too great for God to, to forgive you? I've just cro- I crossed that line. There's there's no way that God's going to hear or listen to me. But as with Peter, we see that picture forgiving and restoring his people is exactly what our great King does. It's what he does. That's what he does. In a stunning display of compassion, the King in our story did something that uh, wouldn't normally happen. As I said, he forgave and restored his servant. Now, little did Peter know that someday that was going to be his story. And that that truly is our story as well. But Peter's response to forgiveness would be quite different from that of the, the king's servants. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of excursion here. Uh, the parable deals with brothers, right? But what about forgiving the unbeliever, the stranger, or even our enemies? Uh, let's turn to Matthew 5. We need to go to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus has things to say about that. And the first uh, passage you want to look at is, is Matthew 5, 44. Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Of course, the implication being here is that if you love your enemies, you're, you're going to forgive your enemies as well. Uh, and so... In, and Then we go to Matthew six twelve, and this is, of course, this is the Lord's prayer. Uh, we're instructed to pay, pray in this manner: "And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors." Two verses later, Jesus gives us the warning—a uh, warning that really parallels our our text, Matthew six fourteen and fifteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your, your Father forgive your trespasses. So in those three passages, those three passages, there were three types of people that were in view. Uh, we have enemies, we have debtors, and we have others. There's no mention of brothers at all. In those in those texts. So Jesus is teaching us that forgiveness extends to an unbelieving world as well as to the to the family of believers. So returning again we stay there in the, in the sermon on the Mount and we read Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, But with this comes some consolation, right? Your reward is great in heaven. So we, we know that, right? But what is, but who is easier to forgive? Who is easier to forgive? Uh, Who has the greater impact on our emotions? Who leaves us with a sense of betrayal? We're not surprised when the world mistreats us. We brace ourselves. We know it's coming. But it's a whole different story when a loved one causes us deep emotional pain. That's a whole different story, isn't it? It's not expected. We don't see it coming. We're left stunned, bewildered, and hurt. The cut is deep. It is painful. And it is not easily forgotten. Those are the kinds of, uh, of sins that we have the most difficult uh, to forgive. And it can't and should not be quickly brushed aside. Those kinds of things, those should be uh, dealt with. Of course, not every slight or ill-spoken word is going to need to be dealt with. Right? You know, James says we all stumble in, in many ways. And Solomon says, A good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook and defense. So, how do we know when we are to forgive and forget and move on? How do we know when it's okay? I can, I can forgive and forget and just move on, and that's a past issue. If that offense continues to linger on your thoughts, if seeing that person continually reminds you of that perceived offense, then you need to approach that brother. You need to deal with it because it's not going away. But before we rush off to that, we need to pray. That's the first thing ever. Thinking about approaching brother, pray, pray, pray. Seek, seek, God's, seek God in, in, in that. Uh, seek that God will give us wisdom he will grant us a spirit of humility and gentleness before we ever approach that we know what it's like right when somebody approaches us hey uh, you know I want to point something out to you something that's negative well we kind of brace ourselves a little bit right so we're not likely to receive that as we should but we know that we need to so, of course, we can't expect such a, 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 an ideal heavenly response as the one I, I talked about a little earlier. We have to make room for the law of sin that's close at hand. We're sinners. We're sinners. And, and we don't like to be told that we've done something wrong. And, our, and maybe our first response is just try to justify it and explain, explain it in a way that makes us, makes us innocent and, and maybe the accusing party guilty. It, uh, it may, and here's a very important thing in the forgiveness of sin. It may p- take a person some time to think through what's been said. You know, we can't just say, repent right here, right now. can't really expect that. There needs to be some time for what's been said to, to, to settle in. Okay? And there needs to be some time for the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. I don't know if I'll have time at the end of this, but I was going to give a real life uh, uh, situation where somebody did not forgive at first and they did later on, but we'll see. I'm not very good on time. so. And it may just be that we understood the actions of that person. We may have just misinterpreted the words they said or the actions that they said. We have to, we have to really take that in consideration. Uh, we need to lo- leave room for the doubt that we just got it wrong. Just simply got it wrong. And that's really what we should hope for. I hope I misinterpreted those actions. I hope I misinterpreted those words that were said. I want that person to be innocent. I don't want that person to be guilty. So but how do we forgive the person who has grievously sinned against us? I mean, I'm talking about sins that have have, have given us great loss and suffering in our lives. And that 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 still is painful even when we think about it. Even if we've forgiven that person, it's still painful. Because it caused such deep emotional hurt. Jesus' parable makes no secret what the answer to that is. It's not a secret. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Peter's disciples came to him, uh, could you explain that parable to us? But this isn't really one of those. those. Uh, it's really straightforward here. In God's infinite mercy, our enormous debt of sin has been forgiven. That's why we can forgive. In God's infinite justice, he sent his son to pay that enormous debt for us. And that truth should be the motivation for forgiving others. I think that's one of the most obvious points in this, in this parable. But still, we can struggle with unforgiveness. Having all these things said, we still have sin and we can still struggle. We may cry out, Lord, I want to forgive that person. I pray for that person. I'm your child. Why am I struggling? What am I doing wrong? You ever felt that way? Why is that popping up again? I I forgave that person. I don't understand. I want to address that with three points. Uh, we all struggle with sin, with all sorts of sin. We struggle with all sorts of sin. We long for that day when that struggle is going to end. That day when remaining sin is not going to remain anymore. But just like other sins, the sin of unforgiveness must be put to death. The sin of unforgiveness must be put to death. Allowing this or any sin to reign in our members is not an option. It's not an option. Uh, Second, uh, Jesus' warning isn't directed toward people who are earnestly seeking to forgive, yet they're struggling to do so. That's not what Jesus... The threat isn't, isn't about those people who are earnestly seeking to forgive. The king's servant is giving as an example of unforgiveness that Jesus sets before us. He's the example given. He's not struggling to forgive his fellow servant. He's going through no struggle at all. His only struggle is recouping the the debt that his fellow servant had had owed him. He wants to grab him, choke him, and throw him in prison. There's no struggle with uh, unforgiveness, right? Uh, It's an outright refusal to forgive. It is that persistent unforgiveness that Jesus condemns. It's just, uh, I'm not going to forget, it's like the person who says, I will never forgive that person for the pain and suffering that they've caused me. When they cross that line, that was it. They don't deserve my forgiveness and they're not getting it. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is really dealing with. And third uh, point is our besetting sins. As we said, we may find ourselves battling with those sins of, of unforgiveness. But forgiving someone who sinned against us must be a top priority in our lives. A top priority. I highly recommend putting it at the very top of your prayer list and seeking God's help every day until you're confident you can say in your heart that you have forgiven that person from your heart. It can't be something that's set on a shelf. It can't be something, I'll get to that some other day. You know, put put it on a list. That has got to be top one priority. And so, there are some sins that have uh, a far more uh, devastating effect on others, and 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 they devastate others. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled." That. That unforgiveness spreads. It doesn't stay within you. Which is like a lot of sins. As we continue with Jesus' parable, we see that breaking the king's commandment demands justice. We read that in verses 23 through 25. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So in essence, the king had just imposed a life sentence, right? You know, without any possibility of ever being able to pay that debt. The, 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 ta- the 10,000 uh, talents that was owed to the king, it, it's at least an equivalent of 20 years wages. And and that's, most commentators actually put it, they put it in our today's numbers, and it's (laughs) astronomical. But again, it doesn't matter if it's a dollar, if you you can't, if you're in prison, debtor's prison, you can't work to pay it off. And so, the point is, there's no way of paying that debt. Again, this was a, a life sentence, a life sentence. There were no bankruptcy courts. There were no creditors who might reduce the uh, the debt or perhaps give you more time to pay that debt. So this kind of culture is really foreign to us. We have all sorts of alternatives. The king's law meant one, one strike, you're out. That's it. There's nobody to appeal to. Justice must be served. Now, we need to be careful here how we are to compare this earthly king with our heavenly king. They're not Far away, they're not exactly equivalents. Human kings could be cruel and vindictive, and laws could be unjust, and often that penalty simply did not fit the crime at all. Of course, not so far, Heavenly King, right? Deuteronomy 32, 4, The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are justice. The God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So that makes a difference between our God and and a heathen God. So Our king, excuse me. So what does our heavenly king have in common with this earthly king? What do they have in common? Well, of course one thing that really jumps out, of course is compassion and mercy and forgiveness. That's that's really clear. That's a, a main point of this parable. And both kings have this in common as well. The absolute authority to rule and reign in their kingdom there is a parallel there that is striking this powerful autonomous king had, had the authority and right to enact laws and he had the authority and right to pay the penalty for someone breaking those laws our heavenly father has the sovereign authority to make uh, and power to make those laws as well and has the right to punish those who disobey those laws His moral law will never be abrogated or set aside. The wages of sin will never, ever change. Those wages will always result in death. God's justice demands that someone must pay those wages. They have to be paid. Uh, With nowhere to turn, the king's servants makes one last desperate plea in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. All right. And so the promise to pay, to pay back his debt, of course, that was an empty promise, right? The king knew that. You're not going to pay back that debt while you're sitting in, you know, in prison. Uh, so in modern parlance, the king's servant was throwing himself on the mercy of the court. Right? we see that today. If the evidence is so great against somebody, it's just so overwhelming. The counselor's gonna, gonna suggest to his clients, do just that. You know, try to seek the, the, mercy of the court in that. The king's servant just simply did not have a leg to stand on. And here's the thing. His cries for mercy worked. It worked. It worked. Now the king's, the king shows mercy over judgment. I sure hope that sounds familiar to everyone here. Right? The king chose mercy over judgment. In verse 27, we read, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's interesting because he was not just free to go out and try to pay back that that money that he owed. He wasn't just free from Peter. He didn't have a debt to pay. I mean, this was a... The king had wiped his slate clean in every single way. This servant was given a brand new life and a fresh start. I hope you know this is clearly our story as well. When God came into our lives, we had a debt that we could not pay. We were headed for the prison of hell without any chance of getting out. And then one day we received a pardon that we had never saw coming. It's a good story. No one listening to this parable could have, have, have predicted that outcome. This it just doesn't play out like that in that time. Certainly, the king's servant never saw it coming. He did. not We can picture this servant being stunned and speechless. Imagine you're, you think your life is over, or your life is over, and all of a sudden the slate's been wiped clean. You go, "What? You're, you're kidding? You're kidding me? Uh, we might, you know." We can picture that servant and, and there are occasions when we've been so surprised and so stunned at what we just heard, we can't believe our ears. We can't believe the good news that we have just received. We might say to the person who brought us, brought us this good news, I'm sorry, could you, especially my ear, I'm sorry, could you say that again, please? I just did not hear it. I must not have heard that right. You see, you just told me the best news that I have ever heard or I have er, could possibly ever hear. You need to tell me that one again. Now, I hope that sounds familiar. I hope that sounds familiar. Do we think about the gospel that way? Do we think about Does the good news seem almost too good to be true? I hope it does. When we're really thinking about the gospel, we need to come to that conclusion. Is it so sweet to our ears that we can never hear it enough? The good gospel, that old, old story... Again, this good news of an enormous unpayable debt that's been canceled. And that should just sound ever so familiar with us. Of course that and that's the picture that Jesus is drawing for us, clearly drawing for us in this story. But there is there is one very important difference in this story. In this story, in our story. It's a big difference. In this parable The enormous debt of sin owed is never paid by anyone. Nobody ever pays that debt. It just goes unpaid. You have this earthly king just wiped up. Nobody gets punished. Nobody serves time. It's it's a debt that is not being paid. Of course, we know that's not true with us, right? That, That makes it completely different. Our debt had to be paid. Somebody had to be punished. The wages of sin is death. Right? Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul writes, And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of death that stood against us and its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, this king, there's no cross there. There's no way, there's no... uh, way that he's going to be trying to recoup that debt. And it is only by the way of the cross that that, our debt could be laid aside. Our merciful, compassionate, heavenly Father is also the just judge who will not allow sins to go unpunished. And I think a lot of the church today really doesn't get the justice of God. Oh, they love the mercy of God. They want the mercy of God. They want the forgiveness of God. They want what God can do in their lives and so on. When it comes to the justice of God, uh, it seems to be part of the gospel that's just not not preached. By the time I, I tell the story about a, this woman down, I used, to, I used to do some street preaching in Portland. This woman came by. This woman came by and, and said, You know, there's a lot of negative stuff in your preaching, you know. And of course, I was preaching both the wages of sin and the gift of God. But, uh, you know, these people that are going to work, they want to hear a good message, you know. They want to be uplifted and they want to feel courage and things like that. I said, that's true, but, but he, he, here's, what, here's why I preach what I do. In fact, here's my goal of preaching. I want my, my preaching to best reflect the preaching that turned the world upside down in the book of Acts. I want to look at Peter, and I want to look at Paul, and I want to look at how they preached. Now, she was a Christian, and she got that. She's you so used to this uh, other kind of Christianity, but wow, well, yeah, okay, yeah. You know, I guess we should kind of preach like you know the way the Bible tells us to, tells us to preach, and so so it's only by the way of the cross, and so receiving God's grace, of course, we know is life-transforming. You simply are not saved without that, without the Holy Spirit, because you'd be born again in trans in transforming your life. The new heart always produces a new life. I've said this before that an unchanged life is an unsaved life. An unchanged life is an unsaved life. The King's grace had no positive transforming effect on his servant. His actions that followed would, would leave no doubt in verse twenty eight. But when that servant came, servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke, saying to him, "Pay what you owe." Money appears to be the uh, the god of this servant uh, that, that he had worshipped. Money, and even because even after forgiving his debt, that the first thing he did, the first thought was to go out and find his fellow servant that owed him money. And it's not, it's you know. I, I first read this and I thought, oh, it's it's some chump change, you know? Well, well, no, not really, right? It was about four months' wages, four months' wage, and not only that, it had to be paid right then, right there. Are You are you going to prison. Imagine somebody knocking on your door, uh, four months right now. Got your bags packed, you know? <laughs> That's that was not chump change at all. So. Let me ask this question. Uh, oh well, uh, no, I'll, I'll skip that. But unlike the debt owed to the king, this debt could have been paid over time. It was it was a payable debt, but you found there was no effort to pay out this debt. Instead, of course, again he seized him, choked him, and demanded that payment be made immediately. It sounds a little bit like a loan shark, right? <laughs> I'm not leaving until I get the get the money. Uh, Oh, here's the question that I want to, I thought it was there, there, it's here. Who are we in this parable? Who are we in this parable? We're certainly not the king. We can, we can eliminate that right away. Uh, I don't think Jesus is leading us to believe that we are one of those fellow servants who reported his fellow servant to the king. That kind of just leaves us with uh, uh, two choice, really. I like the way one commentator put this. Are we the choker or the (laughs) chokee?" Well, I agree at times that we are the choker, at least in our hearts and at least in our thoughts. Who hasn't secretly secretly desired choking over forgiveness? Those feelings of, I want revenge, I, I, I want that. Or perhaps seeking a pound of flesh instead of seeking forgiveness and mercy. And of course, again, what child of God doesn't want those kinds of thoughts banished forever? And so notice the plea of his fellow servant in verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The king's servant says essentially the same thing. He's just mimicking. God, Jesus wants us to see that, that these two servants are kind of on a, a same basis. You're going through the exact same thing pretty much, right? Have patience with me. Uh, both servants pleaded for the same things from the lender. The same things. Mercy, patience, time, and I don't want to go to prison. They wanted those they wanted those same things. His fellow servants would have been amazed, of course, when they, when they heard the, the compassionate king giving his uh, forgiveness and such. Of course, that would turn to outrage. In verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Jesus conveys the righteous indignation of his fellow servants in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw that he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Their indignation compelled them to respond. Their indignation compelled them to respond. Such an egregious act of ingratitude and forgiveness should not go unpunished. The fellow servant's response, that was a picture of God's moral law written on everyone's heart. We see it. We don't have to have a law. We see it right there. That's evil. That's wrong. And that's what they saw. They instinctively saw the actions of the king's servant as being hypocritical. He had pleaded with the king, and the king gave him mercy, and yet he's going out and and choking his fellow servant. Uh, That was just an injustice. They were not going to allow to sit. Verse 32 begins the king's response to the report. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, you forgave all that debt because because uh, you pleaded with me. You forgave that. On four previous occasions, the servant was identified as the king's servant. The king is now addressing as, you wicked servant. It's all changed. It's all changed. The true character of this wicked servant was now on display for everyone to see. The king's mercy was not appreciated, and his fellow servants were deemed expendable. Whether now on Judgment Day or the, the true servants of God... It's going to be made known. It's going to be made known. And imposters are going to be exposed. There will be be those who claim to be, "Hey, I'm a faithful servant of God, a faithful servant of God. And it's not going to be the case. Yet God will expose them as a wicked servant. So the king reasons with this wicked servant in verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Well, empathy is defined as the ability to recognize, understand, and share the thoughts and feelings of another person. And of course, that was something that was just not there. And that's that's really that's really the Christ like love that we're extend to the others. To to feel for that person, to understand where that person is going through. Of course, Christ said it best, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because you've got to think about your neighbor before you love him, right? So this wicked servant possessed none of those qualities. Well, the king's logic is compelling and it is irrefutable. And on that day, on that basis, the king hands down his sentence on verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. The parable ends here. That's that's the end of the parable. But Jesus now addresses those who are listening and he's addressing you and he's addressing me. In just a few words, he delivers the moral of that story in verse 35. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. So Jesus is drawing pictures here that are very obvious to us as Christians. So you know, that kind of picture, we think of pictures of loved ones and events in our life, and we pull those things out and we look at them because they mean a lot to us. Pictures like this that Jesus gives, we need to pull those out often. We need to look at those because they are near and dear to us. So we need to be reminded and refreshed and to look deeply at that infinite grace. Look deeply at that infinite grace when our brother has sinned against him. That's just the main point of this whole text. The wicked servant represents a professing believer whose heart and mind has not been changed by God's grace. That's what it recognizes. And Jesus warns us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Has your debt of sin been canceled? Has your debt of sin been canceled? Have you been pardoned by the heavenly king? Has he forgiven you that enormous debt? Have you tasted the forgiving grace of God? That's what this is all about. Are you resting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And this parable is telling us just that. Have you ever felt the crushing weight of sin roll off your back, that huge burden? You know, we see in, the, in Pilgrim's Progress. Have you felt that, that it rolled off your back one day and you sensed that your, your sins had been forgiven? And here's very important. Here's the biggest evidence that you've experienced the grace of God. Is holiness now your daily goal? Is holiness now your daily goal? That's a big sign that you've truly been saved. In John three thirty-six, Jesus sets two futures before us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on him. It was there before that person could even hear the gospel. Our sins, our sins, condemn us before God. God's wrath remains on all those whose sins have not forgiven. And later, uh, uh, later, Jesus makes this glorious, unshakable promise. I think that's one of our fam- favorite promises in John six thirty-seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's no doubt. If you don't know Christ today and you want to come to him, you're not the exception. You're not that one person that this Christ. No, I'm sorry. I meant everyone else. No, it is you. It is you. And if you come to me with your heart, with not just with your mouth, of course, yes, Lord, help me. God be merciful to me, a sinner, as that tax collector has said. We pray that that's the case of you today. Uh, May you know the peace that a believer has in knowing that you're going to heaven, you're going to be with God. All sadness and sorrows are going to be gone. Amen. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we just thank you for a great grace that we just, oh Lord, we need to think about that over and over again. the things that you suffered, Lord Jesus, as you walked this earth, uh, the abuse that you took, Lord, you lived that perfect life on behalf of those who would, who would trust you. you know, Lord, you, you received God's full wrath for our sins on that cross. Lord, we, we thank you because not one drop of that wrath is ever going to fall upon us. And we praise You for that. We praise You for so great a salvation. You could have left us in our sins and been perfectly just. But You did not do that. You chose mercy over judgment. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.